0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 24th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The FBI crime lab is considered to be the gold standard for certain elements of criminal investigations, but that lab has widely distributed some forms of junk science and trained state level crime labs in the use of that junk science. And that's had big implications for criminal trials throughout the U.S. Radley Balco discusses his recent piece in The Daily Beast how the FBI Crime Lab now looks to help prosecutors get around questions about the credibility of their evidence. When the FBI investigates a crime, uh, they use a lot of experts. Uh, They use ballistics experts, um, people who know a lot about cars. Uh, I'm (laughs) thinking back to My Cousin Vinny, where the FBI Crime Lab expert was brought in to uh, give testimony uh, in that movie. So I guess what do we know about the FBI crime lab and what do we know about the level of expertise, the level of, uh, at which it operates? So, you know, if you,
1: if you ask the FBI or if you ask most people in forensics, uh, they'll say that the FBI crime lab is, you know, one of the elite crime labs in the world. Um, unfortunately, you know, it has had its, its share of problems. Um, probably one of the most notorious incidents, uh, was after the Madrid train bombings when, uh, the fbi crime lab mar- matched a partial print uh found at the scene of the bombings to a uh, an oregon attorney named brandon mayfield and uh, mayfield was arrested and his life was kind of turned upside down and turns out he was innocent um but that's just one case um there, there have been other scandals that uh, have been far more far reaching uh including uh two areas of forensics that are that are going to touch on ballistics which i I take it we're going to talk about in a minute uh but but that are related to ballistics um and and there's this field of forensics that's called pattern matching and this is any time uh you have an expert who is looking at uh, evidence from a crime scene and then comparing it to evidence that's associated with a suspect somehow so uh it could be a fingerprint uh it could be uh you know bite marks, it could be hair or carpet fibers. Um, but it is inherently subjective. It's an expert looking at one thing under a microscope uh, under a microscope and eyeballing it and then looking at another thing under a microscope and saying these two things are are linked or matched somehow, right So the two other big scandals that we saw with the FBI one' was with with hair and carpet fiber matching or analysis, and the FBI finally admitted I think it was in two thousand and fifteen that uh for decades its analysts had been overstating their certainty or 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 basically their their testimony wasn't backed by scientific evidence uh when they were matching hair and carpet fibers in these cases uh and we're talking you know hundreds of cases in which they testified and in fact one review found that in 95% of the cases in which an FBI analyst testified um they had uh, uh, overstated their, their findings or their certainty to a point where it was not backed by scientific evidence or scientific research. So it was scientifically invalid. Uh, worse, they had trained hair and carpet fiber experts across the country at the state and local level. So we're talking now thousands of cases, including lots of cases that resulted in executions, in death sentences. Um, there have been multiple convictions overturned. There was a guy in Mississippi who was hours from execution when the FBI finally decided to admit that it had been you know, overstating the evidence uh, all these years. Um, there's one other big scandal that came about 10 years earlier than that, and that is uh, in a field known as um, bullet lead composition. And again for decades fbi analysts have been claiming that this time they claimed that every box of bullets uh that comes out of a bullet factory um has a unique chemical signature so they use this to say well if you find a, a bullet at the crime scene and then we find a box of bullets at the suspect's house the fbi analyst said would go on the stand and say because of this unique chemical signature i can tell you that that this bullet had to come from that other box of bullets and they finally had to admit, uh, after lots of scientists, you know, started questioning their ability to, to make these matches, they finally had to admit that this was, this was all junk science as well. And they had tainted, again, in this case, probably hundreds of cases. So that's kind of the background of where we're coming at this, this uh, ballistics
0: uh, memo that comes out uh, in December of last year. So what did this uh, memo say? This is the assistant general counsel of the FBI crime lab, Jim Agar, maybe mispronouncing that, but what did he say?
1: So I need to, need to give you a little bit more background here also on ballistics, forensic ballistics analysis um, or forensics firearm analysis. So basically, this is this is what you see in CSI and all of the sort of crime procedurals that you get a uh, a firearms expert. Uh, on the witness stand and he says every, you know, they'll say something like every gun leaves unique markings on a bullet when the bullet leaves the barrel, right? And they'll claim that they can look under a microscope and then they can pick, they can look at the markings on the bullet and they can match it to one gun to the exclusion of all other guns on the planet, right? So again, this is a form of pattern matching. This is, they take the gun that the suspect owned, or they can tie it to the suspect. They fire it in a, a lab. They look at the markings on the on the bullet, and then they claim that they can then look at the markings on the bullet found on the crime scene or found on the victim, and and tell you whether they were fired from the same gun. Um, and what we found is, you know, after years and years and years of this kind of testimony and judges allowing it, um, recently, probably in the last fifteen or twenty years, scientists have actually started looking at this and 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 trying to determine whether or not you can actually say that. Uh, and they found that you haven't, and the reason why is because with a lot like a lot of other pattern matching fields, in order to like say something that with that amount of certainty, um we would have to know all of the guns in the world that could possibly leave marks similar to the ones found on this particular bullet, right and that's impossible to say right it's It's the same with really any field of pattern matching bite marks, um fingerprints there's just no there's just no way that we can say, we, we don't, okay, within each, each of these fields, um, they'll, they'll talk about what they call our distinguishing characteristics, right? So in a fingerprint or a bullet, like the marks that distinguish that fingerprint or bullet from every other one. What we don't know is how often those distinguishing characteristics occur in the general population. So we can't, we can't put odds on it, right? If you contrast this to say DNA testing, we know how, how often certain DNA markers occur in the human population. So when a DNA Analyst, you know, and DNA is is science. It was, you know, honed in scientific in the scientific community. It rose out of science. They can say, "Look, I know that these markers occur this often in the in the human population. These are the markers we have. Here's are the markers. For, these are the markers from the suspect. The odds of anyone other than the suspect, you know, owning this blood are one in twelve billion. Right? They'll never say this is a match. They'll they'll give you odds. Right? They'll give you a margin for error. Um, you can't do that in the pattern matching fields because it's so subjective. That the, there, the analyst is saying, "I'm just sort of eyeballing this, and I'm giving you my expert opinion that this is a match." Um, and so scientists have said, "You can't with ballistics. You can't do that because we just simply don't know. There's no there's no scientific research to support the idea that every gun leaves unique marks on a bullet. Nor is there any scientific research to suggest that an analyst can look at those marks and sort of um, can analyze them and and sort of categorize them in a way that." distinguishes that bullet from other bullets or the bullets fired from that gun from other guns um, and so you know for years judges have just allowed this evidence in um you know on the on the presumption of oh well, one because judges aren't trained as scientists they're trained as lawyers uh, and because we have a confrontational uh, legal system uh, they've basically taken the approach of well we'll just let this this expert testify for the prosecution, and the defense can call their own, and they'll just fight it out on the witness stand, and the jury will go, you know, decide who's more persuasive. And you know, the problem with that is there are a lot of problems with that. But uh, a couple, one is that you know, the set of skills it takes to persuade a jury or to come off as as convincing to a jury are not necessarily the same set of skills it takes to be a good scientist or a good analyst. In fact, the two are often contradictory. Um, juries crave certainty. And so an expert is willing to go on the stand and say, you know, look confident and assured and say, you know, I'm going to tell you for certain that this is, I'm going to give you the certainty that you crave. This was a match. Whereas the expert goes on and says, you know what? We can't really tell. I can't say either way. Uh, juries don't find those people particularly persuasive, even though that's probably the more scientifically accurate thing to say. Um, you know, juries are also more suspect of, uh, they see the experts for the defense as hired guns, where they see the experts for the state as sort of, you know, public servants. Um, so there's, a you know, their, their credibility, uh, the credibility kind of gap is built in from the start of the trial. Um, so what happened is when scientists finally started looking at forensic uh, firearms analysis and, and finding that there was no scientific evidence for the, the kind of testimony that these experts were giving, um, they started, you know, publishing the results. And uh, we've had three different studies done by scientists uh, that have basically said that there's no scientific evidence for to support a firearms analyst saying that they can match one bullet to one gun to the exclusion of all their guns. So, you know, after decades of uh, science, feedback from the scientific community, judges have finally started to restrict what uh, these experts can say on the stand. And and they're not telling them that they can't testify. What they're saying is that testimony has to be scientific. And so they're saying, you know, you can say that I can't exclude the possibility that this gun fired this bullet. But what they can't say is this gun could only, this gun and only this gun uh, fired this bullet. Uh, And, you know, that's that's a lot different. But but they want to give juries the certainty they crave, even if it isn't backed by science. And this the fact that judges have finally started putting some limits on what they can say has just, you know, really riled up the forensics community and law enforcement and prosecutors because, you know, it's going to make it harder for them to win convictions, which, you know, it should. Um, So this is where we get the the agar memo. Um, So finally, we start getting some pushback from judges that putting these fairly mild restrictions on what analysts can say. And so Agar, um, and this, it, it, it's probably not correct to, to characterize it as a memo. It's a handout. Um, there was a virtual conference of forensic firearms analysts in Wisconsin in um, last year, late last year. And then the the organizer of the conference is an analyst in, in Wisconsin, um, then emailed uh, the handout that from Agar's lecture uh, to about 200 forensic firearms analysts around the country. And in it, you know, Agar, uh, you know, is sort of expresses his displeasure with the fact that judges are finally putting limits on this kind of testimony. And then, curiously, he he gives them sort of advice or a roadmap on how to undermine judicial authority when it comes to deciding what evidence can and can't get into court. And what he 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 goes so far far as to um, at one point include suggested dialogue between a prosecutor and an expert uh, that they could engage in. During a hearing on whether this this type of testimony is admissible, which, you know, um, I, I talked to one attorney who, you know, was was actually more sympathetic to Agar than the three or four other experts I talked to, but who said this is, you know, this is fodder for defense attorneys, right? This this memo is going to be used by every defense attorney in the country where this evidence is trying to put in because he's basically uh, encouraging, giving them the uh, suggested dialogue to engage in the prosecutor so that if they do try to engage in it, it's going to not look authentic, right, and spontaneous at all. It's going to look extremely rehearsed and planned. Um, but then probably the most controversial aspect of the handout is Agar instructs these analysts to say, to tell judges that if you tried to tell me that I can't match a specific bullet to a specific gun, you're basically asking me to commit perjury. Uh, which is just absolutely (laughs) outrageous and ridiculous. And, you know, the legal experts I showed this to, uh, you know, sort of just scoffed. Um, a couple of them actually said, you know, thought, thought that this was unethical and, but, but most of them just sort of thought it was ridiculous.
0: We have experts at the FBI crime lab, uh, in, in these various fields. And this is, you focused on, uh, ballistics expertise here, and, and what's most alarming is the degree to which these people have been trained lots of other people at the state level. Uh, you make note that a Texas Scientific Commission was uh, particularly ticked off by right. the report, by this this memo. What do they say?
1: Yeah, so the, um, the Texas uh, Forensic Science Commission was established after an article uh, in The New Yorker and then some follow-up reporting pretty conclusively established that Texas executed an innocent person, a guy named Cameron Todd Willingham. And he was executed based on junk, uh, you know, fraudulent arson testimony from an arson expert. Uh, and when that happened, there was a lot of alarm and and a lot of calls for reform. And so Texas became the first and, and unfortunately is still the only state to set up a commission that to, to evaluate uh, f- forensic science and how it's used. I don't like the term forensic science because most of it isn't science, but uh, forensic analyst and how it's used in the courtroom. And so they, uh, when they saw this memo, they were alarmed by it also. And they put out a statement basically uh, condemning uh, Agar's advice to these analysts and, you know, instructing judges basically to be aware that this is going to happen,
0: that this kind of dialogue was going to happen in their courtrooms when people challenge this type of evidence. So uh, to the extent that, these trainers from the FBI's crime lab have engaged in training at the state level, and then those state level experts have been testifying at—you know—these are potentially life and death trials. In many cases, they are life and death trials. Um, to what extent is that? Are these previous are previous trials being called into question? Uh, where this? Uh, evidence or this testimony presented by these experts may have ultimately swayed the jury more than anything else? Uh, you know, to what extent are we opening that up?
1: Yeah. So one of the interesting things and in the other types of forensic um, fraudulent forensic testimony or forensic testimony that's been sort of disproven by science, um, they all, not all, but most of them tend to involve bodily fluids or or bodily substances right um so hair fibers or blood or semen or um and, and it's all um it's all or not all of it but most of this is stuff that includes dna right it's biological material so in these cases particularly hair fiber uh, analysis it was disproven because we we could dna testing came along and and conclusively shown that that But the expert was wrong, that they got the wrong person and the wrong person was convicted. Um, And the courts have been willing to overturn cases pretty, pretty. uh, I would say they've been extremely willing to overturn cases when there's DNA testing that, you know, conclusively shows that somebody's innocent. What they haven't been willing to do is then. Cast a skeptical eye on that particular expert or that particular field, and I've always argued that you know if if you have a if you if you have a case where an expert said this guy definitely did it, and I can my analysis of the hair or the bites or whatever conclusively says this guy did it, and then we later find out that expert was proven wrong in that case by DNA, you know I've always argued that that expert every single case that person testified in should now be reviewed, um, and that's not the the approach the courts have taken. The, the approach they've taken is. You still have to go through the system you still have to get through the really difficult sort of post-conviction gauntlet at the state and federal level um, so there hasn't been that kind of review and there hasn't been that kind of review even in cases where the forensic testimony was just blatantly crap you know when it's blatantly been disproven by science like bite mark evidence which there's no scientific validity to whatsoever um, And even in those cases, um, you know, it's still up to groups like the Innocence Project or pro bono attorneys to find these cases, to go to court, to get through the post-conviction gauntlet uh, and get a court to hear them out. And courts, even in bite mark testimony, courts don't always rule the right way still today. So with something like ballistics analyst, where you don't tend to have DNA, right, because we're talking about bullets now, we're talking about hair or saliva or blood. Uh, we're talking about bullets and usually people get shot from a pretty good distance away. So the, you know, the the perpetrator isn't going to necessarily leave DNA on the crime scene that can be tested. Um, so it's been, you know, judges have been it's, it's taken them a lot longer to be skeptical of this type of evidence, uh, even though, you know, it's it's subject to the same sort of. Problems, cognitive bias, subjectivity, lack of any scientific research to support it—that these other pattern matching fields are. It's just that with these other ones, we had DNA to tell us they were wrong, and we haven't had that with ballistics testing. So it's been a a kind of a difficult time for attorneys to cast doubt on this. But I will tell you you know, one famous case of somebody who was convicted with this type of evidence—it's Curtis Flowers in uh, Mississippi—who I believe holds the record, being tried the most times for the same crime. Uh, I was the subject of the, um, "The In the Dark podcast, which I believe on a Pulitzer. Um, and uh, Flowers was finally exonerated uh, a couple years ago after, I don't know, 20 years or so on death row in Mississippi, He was nearly executed. Uh, but he was convicted primarily, um, or one of the strongest pieces of evidence against him was testimony from a ballistics expert that uh, you know, the show, I think,
0: the "In the Dark" uh, podcast pretty much
1: showed to be um, false
0: or fraudulent. So going forward, uh, if you were to advise judges or legislatures or administrative offices of courts at a state level, what's the first thing that they should look into? I mean, we're talking about potentially a very expensive process, uh, and that's not to say that it's not a worthwhile process, but if there's some low-hanging fruit that would clear a lot of people or at least get review for a lot of cases— Uh, in short order, what would it be?
1: Well, I mean, I think the easiest thing to say would be anybody who was convicted solely with ballistic evidence, um, you know, should be that those cases need to be reopened or reinvestigated. Um, If there's no other incriminating evidence, then absolutely we need to look at those cases. The problem with that, though, is that, you know, we've discovered that a lot of other kinds of evidence are crap also. Um, And so, you know, what tends to happen is, Police in, in particularly in these wrongful conviction cases, the police or prosecutors will get a hunch that that they have their suspect, and then they'll get this kind of tunnel vision. And what they'll then do is just start looking for evidence that incriminates that that particular person. And that can mean, uh, you know, it, it doesn't actually require anyone to be corrupt. It, it just requires too much information getting out to the wrong people uh, and biasing them before they conduct their analysis. So you know, one thing that legislatures can and should do, I think, going forward, for example, is crime labs, any any forensic investigators should not be meeting with police before uh, they do their analysis. They shouldn't be given details about the crime before the analysis. They should be periodically given proficiency tests to make sure that their, their analysis is accurate. So one of the people I interviewed for the article is the director of the crime lab in Houston. Um, and this is this is a guy who actually gets it and, and, and understands, you know, that, that cognitive bias is a serious problem in this field. And so he gives his own analysts these tests. Um, He'll, you know, every 10 or 12 or 15 cases, he'll, he'll submit a fake case um, with, you know, sort of fake evidence to test them, to make sure that they're doing their analysis properly. And just to make sure that they aren't able to detect which cases are real and ones aren't, because of course, you know, that's, that would defeat the whole purpose. Um, he actually gives them rewards if they can sniff out the fake tests and, and, you know, inform him of the fake tests. So it's a kind of a double testing system, right? They, they're testing him and he's testing them. Um, and well, just a little caveat or side note here, cause I think this is hilarious. One of the things he told, told me is, um, when he first started doing this, his analysts were were actually very very skilled at picking out the fake tests, and the reason why they said was because uh, in the fake test the evidence was always very well preserved. Um, the uh, The description of the evidence was grammatically correct, and there weren't any misspellings. And you know, it's sort of funny on one level, but on the other, but but it's also it 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 speaks to as he told me. It sort of speaks to the quality of the evidence that these analysts are getting. In the regular world right um it's it's often flawed police make mistakes crime lab technicians make mistakes There are pl- problems with chain of custody um and that's one of the things he learned in doing this but but the interesting thing is what he found with his ballistic experts is that when it comes to uh i'm gonna make sure i get this right here um there are two separate tests he gives one is can they tell you that these two bullets were fired by the same gun right? That's one test that he would give them. And the other one is, can you tell me that these two bullets were fired by different guns? And on the first one, uh, is, is analyst success rate was about 75%, if I'm remembering correctly, which, you know, that's good, I guess. I don't know if I'm going to execute somebody based on 75% certainty. Um, but when you look at the other test, uh, whether these two bullets were fired by different guns, it dropped to below 50%. So worse than a coin flip. so that should give you a pretty good idea of, you know, how accurate these tests are and how much credibility we should give these experts when they claim 100% certainty, uh, in court. And, you know, I, I would also say that Houston is unique in that they do give these proficiency tests, um, A lot of these fields of forensics have been really, really reluctant to subject themselves to tests. And the reason why is because when they do, they do really lousy. There was a test of bite mark experts that finally, uh, you know, after a lot, a lot of criticism, they finally sort of subjected themselves to one of these exams. And I can't remember what the exact numbers were, but there was just a really sort of troubling, concerning uh, problem in that most of these bite mark experts couldn't even agree on whether a mark in a photo, was an actual bite or not? Like, they weren't even asked to match it to someone. They were just asked to say, is this a human bite or is it something else? And they couldn't even agree on that, right? So, you know, in a lot of these, it, a lot of these were taken from actual cases where a bite mark expert actually testified, yes, that's a human bite. And yes, I can match it to the defendant. But it was given to a bunch of their colleagues. They couldn't even agree on whether it was a bite. So, you know, people are getting executed based on this kind of testimony. And I'm laughing only because that's really all you can do because it's so
0: utterly outrageous. Radley Balco is a writer at the Washington Post and a media fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.